0: It couldn't happen today. Hear how two teenagers with a tape recorder met a future U.S. president on an airport runway. Meeting Nixon, today, on The Off-Ramp, with Bob Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith, a place to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and get some perspective on life. We cover many different topics on the show, and today we're going to tell the story of two teenagers, a tape recorder, and a brush with fame, a story that would be virtually impossible in today's world, with terrorism, death threats, national security, all facing presidential candidates. But a half a century ago, in early 1968, it was a different story, a story that starts this way. Fifty years ago, I was a teenager in a band. Not unusual for 16 or 17-year-olds. And yes, our band played top 40 hits, but it didn't play rock, or swing, or gospel, or R&B, or country, or jazz. It was a a brass combo called A Touch of Brass. We were only together for two years. We never made a name for ourselves, and frankly, I don't think we were all that good. But on one cold day in February 1968, we found ourselves warming up the crowd for a future president of the United States, a man who would eventually become infamous. But on that day, he was just a politician passing through in a year that, at that moment, was far more innocent than our world today. The candidate was Richard Nixon a former U.S. Senator, a former Vice President of the United States, the man who faced John F. Kennedy in the 1960 election, who participated in the first televised presidential debates, and lost. Eight years later, he was emerging from the political wilderness. This is the story of how two teenagers with a tape recorder met him, joined him with a pack of reporters, and captured him expressing his proposed policies. It's a story that just wouldn't be possible today, and you'll soon learn why. To help me tell it, I called up an old friend, one of my bandmates in The Touch of Brass, in fact the only female member, keyboardist Libby Gosnell Brockman. Our meeting with Richard Nixon took place on Saturday, February 10, 1968, just nine days after he officially launched his campaign in New Hampshire. And you were, what, 15 then?
1: Yes, about to turn 16 in July.
0: And I turned 17 that fall, so that shows how young we were at the time. Yeah. We were in high school in Lawrenceville, Illinois, and our high school band director, Mr. Lively, kind of invented that group, didn't he? Yes, he
1: did. Harold.
0: Harold Lively.
1: Herb Albert had just really started hitting the record stores, and... It was the first time a true instrumental band was making the top 40, and everybody
2: was listening to Herb Albert
0: And uh, Mr. Lively, he handpicked us from among yeah. the, the people in the band. Yeah. There.
2: In our group, uh, the Touch of Brass from Lawrenceville High School, we have Artie Akers on guitar, Mike Meek on bass, Bob Smith and Donnie Seibert on trumpet. Uh, we have Paul Sutherland on trombone, David Swanton on trombone, and Dave Stevens on drums, and on the piano, Miss Libet Gosnell. We have quite a varied request for numbers with this group for community services, and we'd like to present now, all my loving, a Herb Alpert arrangement.
1: I couldn't have done half the things I've done in my life musically without Mr. Lively. He he was so generous with his time and advice and teaching that uh, I I thank God every day for Harold Lively.
0: Now, before we go any further, let me tell you that Libby is talented, truly talented. She's been a performer since the age of 4. She can play multiple instruments and she was selected for the famous Interlaken Arts Academy in Michigan. Interlaken's alumni are pretty impressive. Actors Meredith Baxter, Linda Hunt, and Tom Hulse. Singers Rufus Wainwright, Josh Groban, Nora Jones, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Um, I was in school with kids from Beverly Hills,
1: Bel Air, New York City, Shaker Heights, Ohio, all these big towns who obviously had more opportunity for classical learning of music than we had in Lawrenceville, but it it did come so easy for me. I started playing the saxophone when I was nine. I started piano at four. Um, It just came to me, and if I hear a song on the radio and I'm driving home and it hits a spot in me, I can sit down and... I can compose that song in about 15 minutes. Uh. I don't need any sheet music. And so the summer of 1967, when I attended the National Music Camp at Interlochen, I was in the band, I was in operetta workshop. I was a drama major. I was in the choir, then we also had our, our academics too. For instance, at 8 o'clock I had an acting class, and then um, from there it would be theater management. And then I also had a minor in dance, so I was doing modern dance until noon, and then the academics were all, always in the afternoons, your English, your history, your geometry, your science classes, At one point, I was in school with um, three of Dave Brubeck's children. The oldest was Chris, who played trombone. Kathy was in drama, and then Danny played the drums. And Dave Brubeck would often come on campus. And our senior year, starting in 1969, Dave Brubeck had written an oratorio called Light in the wilderness and and Dave Brubeck played the piano for the jazz solos. Wow. And we were also very blessed to have this fabulous conductor, Mr. Eric Kunzel. He also used to do the PBS um, Fourth of July programs. He was the conductor of the Boston Pop. So we were just very lucky to be around greatness.
0: Well, my God, Libby, listen to all the different instruments you played, and you were in the chorus, too, you had more talent in your little finger than oh, everybody else in our little band. We were so lucky to have you.
1: You're so sweet. Thank you so much, Bob. That means the world to me.
0: That's how talented Libby was. And she was playing keyboard in our little combo. I should mention that our original drummer, Bob Potter, who was Libby's boyfriend at the time, was also very talented. In fact, for the last nine years, he's been a member of 1964 The Tribute, hailed by Rolling Stone magazine as the world's best Beatles tribute band. He's played Carnegie Hall four times. Four times! That's how talented my bandmates were. Me, not so much. But talent had little to do with the day we're talking about. Our chance encounter with Richard Nixon came because Republican politician Roscoe Cunningham approached our leader, Dave Stevens, asking us to warm up the crowd when Nixon appeared in our area. Yes, it was. Roscoe was um, pretty much,
1: well, my dad was a Republican, but Roscoe at one time even served in the Illinois state legislature. So, um, yeah, Roscoe, I had a connection with Roscoe from the age of four. He used to have a group, the Golden Age Club, for seniors, and I would always perform for Roscoe. So I was singing and playing the piano for Roscoe Cunningham since the age of four.
0: So Roscoe came to Dave and he says, hey... Richard Nixon's coming to town, and this was after he'd, he'd gone from being a presidential candidate to, I think he ran for governor of California, and he lost. So he was kind of on the outs. 68 was a brand new year, and he was going around the country giving speeches. So Roscoe came to Dave Stevens, our leader, and said, hey, I'd like you guys to play warm up when Richard Nixon comes. And Dave got us all together and said, hey, let's do it. And he said, we're going to get something for it. So we all thought we we're going to get paid, didn't we? <laughs> I'm still waiting for my
1: royalties from age four.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But let's get back to our story. The place Richard Nixon touched down, the Lawrenceville-Vincennes Airport, was an old Air Force base built by the government during World War II. Pilots who trained there took to the skies in all the theaters of the Second World War, Now this large facility had five runways, each more than a mile long, necessary in war, oversized for the peacetime use of our community, but ideal for presidential candidates going through our region in 1968. Air Force One brought President Lyndon Baines Johnson there in 1967. Nixon and Bobby Kennedy landed there in 1968. So let's go back to that day. That was a Saturday in the afternoon. You were 15, I was 16, and we played for the crowd before Nixon actually landed. Yes, we did. Do you remember some of the numbers?
1: For sure, the raging bull.
0: The lonely bull.
1: The lonely bull, yes, the lonely bull. Taste of Honey, and I think we probably played five or six songs
0: for the warm-up. Yeah, and it was cold out there. It was Frigid. It was
1: absolutely frigid. I was wearing gloves that just had the finger part on the end cut off. It was, it was, oh, it was so cold, yes.
0: Did we have portable keyboards then? What were you using?
1: It was the lovely gesture of Tom Tipthord, who had a Farfisa electric keyboard because uh, of his band with uh, Kent Jackman and Bob Potter, The Readings. And anytime time I needed to borrow that electric piano from Tom Tipthord, he'd let me borrow it and use
0: it. Let's make it clear that Kent and Tom had a real band. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, they were playing rock music. They were playing things that, you know, we were all dancing to. And yes. you and I were in a band that was playing things like Rotary Clubs. We opened for a dance in Vincent's University for a rock band from Chicago. And, and, you know, we
1: would play halftime at basketball games, too, on the stage.
0: When Richard Nixon arrived, we were still playing on the platform. As soon as he got there, we got off and let the local politicians take over. Our friend Roscoe Cunningham made the introductions. Now, remember, this is 50 years ago. Roscoe today is still active in his 90s in politics in Lawrence County.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, we uh, want to welcome you all here and uh, Mr. Uh, Grouch, by state authority, Mr. Lawson, the mayor of Venezuela, Mr. Uh, Hetty, the uh, mayor of uh, Lawrenceville, and uh, Dick Nixon, the next person in the United States. Well, this is certainly a very wonderful surprise. Uh, I understood when I came out here to Indiana that this was to be an Indiana meeting. And uh, this great crowd here in Illinois is a pretty good indication. As you may remember, in 1960, we carried Indiana big. We just missed in Illinois. In 1968, we're gonna carry both of them big. And I I, am sure that some of you may be present at the meeting tonight, uh, at that point I'm going to be discussing some of the great problems confronting the country, uh, but since so many of you have been so kind to come out here, just let me say a word about this nation, where it stands now, and why I think that the reason so many of you are here uh, is particularly significant and is far beyond the fact that this happens to be an ordinary election year. We usually think in terms of our being Republicans or Democrats and voting for the party of our choice. And I'm sure that there are a great number of Republicans here, maybe some Democrats, I hope, and some good independents. But I just want to say this. America is in so much trouble in so many places in the world that what we need to do now is to think of the country and not just our party, and get some new leadership for this country as fast as we possibly can. And I would summarize it very briefly in this way. The President of the United States, let me say a man whom I know, I respect him for the office he holds, for his hard work in that office. I am not among those who joins in the petty criticism to which he has been subjected. The President of the United States has put the issue pretty clearly. Five years ago, when he became President, his slogan was, let us continue. And now, four years later, after we've seen what has happened to America, abroad and at home, he says, let us continue for four more years. And so there is the issue, and here is my answer. When the strongest nation in the world can be tied down for four years in a war in Vietnam against a 4th great military power with no end in sight, and when the richest nation in the world can't manage its own economy, when a nation that has the greatest tradition of respect for law and the rule of law that the world has ever known is torn apart by unprecedented lawlessness with crime going up six times as fast as population. And when respect for the United States has gotten so low in the world that a fourth-rate power like North Korea will hijack an American ship in the high seas And when the President of the United States can't travel abroad or to any major city in this country without fear of a hostile demonstration, then I say it's time for new leadership for America. That's the issue. I thank you so much for coming out. I just wish we had the time to shake hands with all of you, Uh, but uh, there is a big crowd, we understand, uh, over on the Indiana side of the border and since uh, that's where I'm supposed to be, I guess we'll have to go. but I can assure you, uh, I'll be back to Illinois to see many of you, I hope, uh, at a later time. And I can also assure you that 1968 is the year. This is the year we're going to win, and we're going to win big all over the country. Thank. <laughs> Re choose for Vi Nixon. <laughs> 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 <hup> Hooray!
1: <laughs> Hooray!
0: After the roar died down, I remained standing at the edge of the stage, arm outstretched, with my microphone, asking Mr. Nixon to come over and say a few words. Mr. Nixon. Several times I shouted above the hubbub, and finally he heard. He turned to us, looked down, and said something about bringing my recorder somewhere.
2: You have to go down and go to TV and bring your recorder.
0: You heard me there asking Libby what she'd just heard and her response. Bring your recorder. Richard Nixon had just invited us to join him at an impromptu press conference. And we would. More on that when The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith continues. We return now to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. When we last left our story, it was 1968, and presidential candidate Richard Nixon had just surprised two teenagers, my friend Libby Gosnell and me, by inviting us to bring our tape recorder and join him as he spoke with reporters. While the rest of the band melted away to pack their instruments, I handed my horn to my family, and Libby and I began charging our way through the crowd with me lugging a tape recorder the size of a briefcase as we tried to follow Richard Nixon across the runway. What do you remember from that point on?
1: Well, I think I I felt in a little bit in a daze, Bob. I felt like, oh my goodness, there's you know this this possible candidate that may be elected president of our country said to us, join us.
0: So we were hustling across the runway there, and along the way we passed Pat Nixon, Mr. Nixon's wife.
1: Yes, Pat was
0: there as she commented on a baby's little red nose.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: Oh, she's so cold, bless her heart. Oh, it's Mrs. Nixon. Yes, what would you say, Libby?
1: Where did Mr. Nixon go?
0: Let's see if we can... I think he's over here in this crowd. Libby? I
1: think he's over here. Um, oh, we we we're never going to shake
0: his hand. We're following Mr. Nixon up to his plane. <laughs> if we can get close to him... They're bringing the crowd up. Every once in a while in our pursuit, we'd catch up with Mr. Nixon, like this encounter he had with a local political activist, someone who obviously was trying to give the candidate too much information. I'm
2: glad to see you. I'll see you tonight, will Oh, yeah. Oh, great, great. Good to see you. But Ronnie Bush had to speak tonight.
0: As fast as we walked through the crowd, it didn't seem fast enough, and. Who were we? Just two teenagers, 15 and 16, among a sea of adults, reporters, activists, and political junkies. Looking ahead, there was chaos. No velvet ropes, no crowd control, very few, if any, police officers. We'd see Nixon's head bob up and down in the crowd and have to change direction to keep heading for him. At one point, it looked like we'd never reach him. But finally, we caught up with him. Just as he assembled a circle of reporters and promised each one of them a question.
2: Okay. All right, fine. We'll i one for each
0: The first reporter asked a question about the Soviet Union and the Vietnam War. But
2: the Soviet Union actually has the key to peace in Vietnam. The Soviet Union furnishes 85% of the logistical equipment.
0: The Soviet Union has the key to peace in Vietnam, Nixon said. The Soviets furnish 85% of the logistical equipment and 100% of the oil. In other words, it was a proxy war for the Russians. But we were still standing outside and couldn't hear much more beyond that. Then came the moment. Richard Nixon saw us. He saw Libya and me and obviously remembered that he said, We have to do a little TV, bring your recorder. And believe it or not, Richard Nixon reached through. He actually reached between the reporters and pulled us into his inner circle. I know he pulled my hand and we must have both gone inside that ring of people. Yes, we did. We did. Just in time to hear him answer a question about rioting in the inner cities.
2: Well, first I would begin by enforcing the law. Uh, I believe it is vitally important for us to recognize that in this country there is no protest which justifies the use of lawlessness uh, or the use of mob violence. Because the moment that we do that, then we destroy the system uh, which has been responsible for the greatest progress in the rule of law that we've ever seen. Then beyond that, what we need is to establish throughout this country in our people, among our people, the attitude of respect for law. It isn't enough just to enforce the law with more police. Uh, what we have to do is to have people understand what the system is about. And then finally, we have to get at the causes, the root causes that make people riot. And that means going into our cities and improving the conditions of those cities uh, so that they will not then resort to lawlessness and violence. We need a three-pronged program, in other words, to get at it. Thank you. Mr. Nixon, the welfare state program has been evolved to the point now
0: that it... Next, a reporter asked about social issues, focusing on welfare.
2: Well, the way I will attack this problem is this. I think it's important for us to recognize that America did not become a great country because of what government did for people, but because of what people did for themselves. Now, this whole field of welfare has violated that principle in many respects. Wherever people need help, uh, the aged, the unemployed, those who are unable to work, uh, they should be helped generously by this great rich country of any country in the world. But where people are able to work, uh, then it seems to me that the approach should not be through a bigger government program of more welfare, uh, but a program of getting private enterprise, giving them the tax and credit incentives so that they provide the jobs. Putting it in a nutshell, rather than more billions for welfare rolls, we meet More people on payrolls in the United States. That would be my
0: problem. Then almost as soon as it began, it was over. I shoved pieces of paper in Richard Nixon's hand and he signed them, Dick Nixon. Then he waved goodbye and entered a waiting car, and that was that. I was only sixteen, but I knew how to end my tape. I'd watch the CBS Evening News many a night. Richard Nixon, former Vice President of the United States, here at the Lawrenceville Vincennes Airport. On Saturday, the 10th of February, 1968, this is Rob Smith from the Lawrenceville Vincennes Airport. (laughs) And that was that. Our life went back to normal. A touch of brass went back to playing rotary clubs and opening for rock bands. But Libby expressed how we both felt about that day, even after Vietnam and Watergate and all the scandals that brought down the Nixon administration.
1: I just felt so honored and humbled that uh, Nixon said to us, the young people, join us. I, I just felt that it was a, a
0: prestigious honor. It was quite amazing. When... It was. It was just uh, a day that, I'm, I'm so glad that I was a part of. It was just amazing. And it's funny because, you know, you think now how easy it was to get near a candidate back then. <laughs> oh, you know, my goodness. Two teenagers with a big tape recorder lugging it across <laughs> the, the runway. Those That was not a tiny little instrument I was carrying there. So. No. And, you know, years later, um, I wrote to him and sent him that recording because when I worked in Rockwell in marketing communications, the guy who was in charge of printing, Hank Oshiewski, we were talking one day and I said, oh, yeah, I was real lucky when I was a kid, I actually got to meet Richard Nixon. So he goes over to his file folder and he pulls out a copy of the inauguration program because that was printed in Milwaukee. And that printer used extra copies of that as samples for his customers to show him the prestigious work he was doing. So he gave me a pristine copy of Richard Nixon's 1968 inaugural program. Oh, my. And I sent that to Richard Nixon along with that recording, Libby, and Nixon sent me back an autographed picture, and <gasps> he autographed that program as well. I've still got it. That's fabulous. A couple of grace notes. My father was the maverick in his Democratic family. He grew up in a family that worshipped FDR, and Dad did too as a World War II soldier. But when Dwight Eisenhower, his commander-in-chief, ran for president in 1952, Dad voted solidly for Eisenhower. And Dad couldn't help but tease his mother, my grandmother, that her grandson had not only met Richard Nixon, but shook his hand.
1: I do not know he was shaking hands with Nixon the other day. That wasn't too good, was it? He was. Oh yeah. Oh, I don't care. He does. Really was he? He was out here. Nixon was out here at the airport. Well, for heaven's sake! <laughs> he was shaking hands with him. Huh? Did he carry his hand around the swing now?
0: Oh yes, and my second grace note to end this story. Remember how the band thought we'd get paid for the Richard Nixon airport gig, and how Libby laughed. Well, a few weeks after playing for Richard Nixon, our leader, Dave Stevens, called us up breathlessly, saying, Get over to my house. We got paid for the show. We, well, we got something here, a big box. Sure enough, we assembled around a large box sent over by Roscoe Cunningham of the Republican Party. When Dave opened it, he pulled out wooden elephants. Yes, wooden elephants. Beautifully hand-carved wooden elephants with ivory tusks. Not the cash that six teenage band members were anticipating. No. Wooden elephants. A groan went up. Words were spoken I can't repeat on this podcast. And we all went home disappointed with our little trophies. But it turns out both Libby and I did keep our little elephants. For years, as a matter of fact. They were great reminders of that cold, cold winter day as we warmed up the crowd for a certain presidential candidate. That was February 1968, a quiet moment in history before a cascade of horrible events began to unfold. Two months later, Martin Luther King was killed. Three months later, Lyndon Johnson announced he would no longer run for office. Four months later, Bobby Kennedy was slain by an assassin's bullet. It seemed there was violence everywhere, and from that point on, every serious presidential candidate would be assigned their own Secret Service detail. They'd forever be surrounded by police, bodyguards, and security officers to safeguard them from harm. The world changed after February 1968. Never again could two teenagers and a tape recorder get that close to a presidential candidate. Well, that's our story. My thanks to Libby Gosnell-Brockman, my teenage bandmate back in 1968, for helping me tell you about meeting Richard Nixon. I hope you'll join us next time here on The Off-Ramp. This is Bob Smith. The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.